Next station is Finch. Finch Station. This is the terminal station. Prochaine station, Lionel Gould. This is a Victoria Line train to Brixton. Hey, Rocket Riders. How are you? In Toronto, where we're based, the city has slowly reopened and the streets are full of energy. People are eating and drinking on restaurant and bar patios. And shout out to the Cafe Tio program, which has been enabling this restaurant recovery. Speaking of COVID recovery, one of the hot ideas being discussed for post-COVID rebuilding in cities is free transit. This is a topic that I personally didn't think much of before COVID, and I had my own reservations about how it would work in Toronto. But 15 months of a pandemic has a way of upending all of our previously held beliefs, which is why this episode is about the case for free transit. So free transit isn't really a new idea. But it seems like the past few years of social inequality and the climate crisis have pushed its popularity amongst transit advocates and some policymakers. So prior to 2020, there were approximately 115 fully fare-free transit systems worldwide, but only 23 of these were in North America. That may not be surprising. However, this ignores the fact that the concept was in fact being rolled out in Kansas City, Missouri, it was seriously discussed in many more cities, and had become a pretty big plank of Green New Deal plans in both Canada and the U.S. The collapse in fare-paying ridership and physical distancing requirements during COVID-19 kicked off an explosion of free transit across North America in places as diverse as Edmonton, Alberta, and Wichita, Kansas. While most of these were emergency measures, and of course, some are being phased out at the time this episode is being recorded, the idea of free transit is now firmly entrenched. And all in all, it's a really big difference from earlier in this decade when the concept seemed at best a long-term goal and at worst a utopian pipe dream. So it begs the question, why make free transit permanent? The remaining ridership on buses and trains in the pandemic skews really heavily towards working class essential workers who do depend on transit. Speaking for ourselves, I work in the insurance industry and I have not needed to commute in over a year now, but Helen works in frontline social services and she takes a streetcar to work every day. So obviously, making transit fare-free would help the most transit-reliant folks in our society, those who work hourly or lower-paid jobs, people with disabilities, those who have children, older adults of all kinds. And of course, free transit would also eliminate fare inspectors. If you listen to our episode on fare enforcement, you would know we're very critical of the TTC's fare enforcement program. The fallen ridership has also shown that farebox reliance is a pretty foolhardy way to run your transit system. And free transit would mean operations are totally funded by general tax revenue. And then they're free of existential crises like ridership plummeting at the beginning of a pandemic, let's say. As we move out of the pandemic and into recovery mode, it would be a complete disaster to allow car travel to cement its dominance. While the U.S. shows ridership improves a little bit as vaccinations rise and lockdowns end, Free transit can kickstart a Green New Deal to remake society better for everyone. And what's not to love about free transit? Discounting the predictable opposition from people who just don't like it when any public money gets spent. Free transit sounds like a good idea. Previous experiments did show some downsides that should be acknowledged, however. Fun fact, free transit existed in some very large American cities several decades ago. In the 1970s, Denver, Colorado, and Trenton, New Jersey eliminated fares during off-peak periods. In the biggest experiment, Austin, Texas went entirely fare-free in the late 80s and into the early 90s. 
A landmark 2002 study by the National Center for Transportation found that while overall ridership did increase for these systems, all reported a big uptick in vandalism against vehicles and property. There were instances of more unhoused people using transit as shelter, and with no corresponding service increase, there was also overcrowding. In 2019, the research organization Transit Center polled riders across the U.S. for their Who's On Board report, and they found that most low-income riders ranked service increases ahead of eliminating fares in order of importance. What does this all mean? Well, we have some opinions on free transit and how it could play out, but first we want you to hear from our great slate of guests. In making the case for free transit, we spoke to three guests for this episode. Jason Prince, urban planner and lecturer at Concordia University in Montreal, Matt Staub, transit advocate and board member of the Kansas City Streetcar Authority, and Robbie Mackinnon, president and chief executive officer of the Kansas City Area Transportation Authority. First up, my interview with Jason Prince. Jason also co-edited a great book called Free Public Transit and Why We Don't Pay to Ride Elevators, which was a wealth of information for us in putting together this episode and one we recommend all listeners take the time to read. Jason Prince, welcome to the next stop. Great pleasure to be here. Could you give listeners uh, just a quick summary of, uh, of your book? I guess it was about 2016, 2015 or 2016 when the idea for the book came about. We went through two editions. The book was intended to help to influence, in fact, the municipal elections in the city of Montreal in 2017. But the book actually does three major things. First, it tries to define what is free public transit. There are different kinds of free public transit. There's free public transit for all people at all times. Uh, But then there's also ways that you can use free public transport to do particular jobs. For example, to try and encourage business downtown, you might make it free downtown as is done in some cities, or it might be free on the weekends. It might be free for children, families, to enable them to move around freely in the city. Or it might be free for senior citizens. You might use it as an income, as a solve for income distribution. So there are many ways you can use public transport. We frame the book as, can cities actually use free public transit at all times and for long periods of time to actually try to correct climate change? Much of our emissions come from transportation. In Quebec, it's pronounced. Something like 40% of our Quebec carbon emissions are in the transport sector. In the Montreal region, it can be as high as 60, 65%. It's, uh, you know, if we're looking for a silver bullet to fix the climate, our our contribution to the climate problem in Montreal, we're going to have to fix transport. But the book does a couple other things. First, we look back in time to see where the idea of free public transport came from. And then most of the book is case studies of where it has been tried and What are the circumstances of those efforts? And so we try and give a scope, the scope of the different efforts that have been done around the the world to date. And some of them are a bit more historical and some of them are the burning issues right now today. And in fact, the city of Toronto has a chapter and there's a very strong free public transport group in Toronto that have been pushing for some years now. So that's what we try to do in the book. We try to set the stage. I think it, it might be the first book that's been published in English that does that. There was another book that dealt with a question, but it was more of a technical book on the fin- like how do you finance that. So this one was more about the politics of the free public transport movements historically and today. But we do have a nod in the book to how do you finance that, and that's at the very end. It's kind of like the punchline. We struggled over whether to include it or not, 
and we decided to include something. And so what we do is we take the the title, you know, we don't pay to ride elevators, that's the subtitle, as as a, an obvious statement. And we try to imagine then, or reimagine in the last chapter, we have a great author who tries to reimagine, well, how would, how would that look if we were to take the same logic to bringing people up to the top floor of a tall building for free? How do we do that horizontally in a city? How does, what does that look like? And so he does a, a very good little thought experiment on how that, what that could look like. And I think it's unique. And that last chapter, I think, is one of the big, big minds in, in the transport, Jan Shearer. And it's full of little anecdotes, too, that, uh, that, that show some of the challenges that, that groups have faced uh, when they're trying to implement it. What I find very interesting, though, is, you know, free transit isn't really a new idea. It may seem like that on this side of the Atlantic, but your contributors uh, highlight how, you know, this has been something that's been thought about for decades. So, you know, there's one chapter about uh, Italian cities that have versions in the 1970s. There have been, like I say, many experiments worldwide in the decades since. Why do you think it took so long to really seize the public imagination right now in North America? So, for example, as a key plank in Green New Deal ideas? I think the, the, the short answer is that the revolutionary potential of the 60s and early 70s was cut short by the neoliberal juggernaut, right-wing think tanks that really engineered the me generation later and really stripped away all the, all the beautiful idealism of the early 1970s. It was washed away by um, Thatcher and Mulroney and Reagan in the United States. In fact, what this book tries to do is to reconnect to where we were. We've come back to that place, I think, where we were in the 1970s, where we seriously consider the Marxist angle on our world. It's not that it disappeared. It just was in the background for the past few decades. And it's coming now to the, to the foreground with people like Bernie Sanders openly talking about socialism. In a way, the, the, the book tries to reconnect us to that conversation that was happening in the early 70s when the climate crisis was, we, we didn't use the same language, but the ecological crisis was very, very obvious to us then. In that context, then, we were asking questions about how do we, how do we combat that? I think if we just go back just a tiny bit further, though, the free public transit question comes from both sides of the political spectrum. And as far as I can make out, the earliest arguments for free public transport were coming from the business sectors in United States cities. Even as late as 1972, there was a mayor in, in one of the boroughs in New York City who was seriously arguing that, and, and even had lined up the, the private sector to support it. The, the businesses would pay to bring their workers and their business to their location for free. So they would then spend in their businesses and keep their real estate vibrant. I'm speculating here, but it, I believe that in the 50s and in the 60s, the downtown cores of the cities that were calling for free public transport, these property owners were, were trying to bring back some more of their customers who were being, you know, every year were being lost to the suburbs and to the shopping malls that were being built in the suburbs. So I think in that context, they, they, they thought perhaps free public transport, and they were willing even to pay for it, would, would make them better competition for the, their suburban sprawl retail choices. If we've now fast forward to the early 70s, we have a chapter actually from a very lovely book called Red Bologna, which I encourage all your listeners to dig up and read. It's, it's freely available as a PDF on the internet. And we, we just extract one of the chapters, but the entire book shows the city of Bologna making some pretty serious strides forward against the automobile-dominated city. And actually, there are many parts of the book. I'll, I'll just talk about the, the transport part. But that book really shows 
a full-blown effort to beat back the capitalist city, the speculative city. Now, this is just a few years after the famous book that produced the idea of the right to the city. Stuff is percolating, you know, right across Europe. But in Bologna, that's an Italian city, but it's one of the large cities in Italy. That city actually pulled together a large coalition of cities from around the world to sign a kind of a manifesto around free public transport. All the cities were, were now into the second decade of, of the problem that had been created by the car companies in the post-war period, where we have a growing number of cars and the option to live in the suburbs and then to bring your car into the city center where people work or go or study or shop. And it's a bit like the death by a thousand cuts. You know, every year there's, a, there's, a, there's tens of thousands of more cars in the, in the region. And then every year the congestion in the city is, is getting worse. And people don't quite understand how, why. It's the accumulation of these individual decisions that people are making that creates the daily river of steel, which is destroying the quality of life in these ancient cities. And so Bologna really, they took a stand. And their, their efforts in the early 70s, which are captured so beautifully in this book, Red Bologna, their efforts, I think, are the, mark the beginning of the pushback against the automobile. We can trace a lot of the experimentation that goes on in Europe, uh, which now is in its full flower in places like in Northern Europe, mostly in Northern Europe, where the car has been really rejected. You know, the Copenhagen model and Amsterdam, where we have 30 or 40% of the, of the daily movements are now, you know, by bicycle or by active transport. There's a large chunk of people moving by public transport and the car has now been marginalized. They didn't get to that place like, in five years, they, they got to that place in, in 40 years. It took 40 years to do that. And that, the starting point for that was in this period in the, in the early 70s. Europe pursued this for decades in some cities. And North America, of course, we lost our way. Now there's a new, there's a new in urban planning circles, there's a new kind of church. It's, in fact, there's, we even have a word for it. Copenhagenize, pursue the process of trying to remove cars from the city by tiny incremental steps. To properly pursue that, the recipe goes that you don't want to provoke a political response from the car drivers, that they rise up in anger and, and become a political force against your efforts to, keep, to get them out of the picture. So in the same way, to borrow a metaphor from um, Al Gore, you can cook a frog if you, if you raise the temperature one degree at a time, frog won't jump out of the water until it's too late. We're doing that to, using Copenhagenites, we're doing that to the private automobile in cities that are pursuing the Copenhagenized model. We're taking slowly, we're taking things away from car drivers and we're raising the price of driving a car. We're removing infrastructure for cars in such a way that eventually they're no longer in the city. They no longer have a function in the city. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. So this book, in, in, in some ways, what this book is suggesting is that at this point in our history, with the few hours and minutes that we have left to prevent a complete collapse of our of our ecosystems, that we need a big jump. And when, when, when a city, a big city, right now the biggest city is a half million people, but when a big city like Paris or Berlin or Chengdu in China or Toronto, when a big city stands up and says, nope, going in another direction here, and the neon sign that tells us that they're going in that direction is free public transport. It's the, not the only thing that they're going to do, but it's the neon sign that says we're open for business now, we're doing a completely new model right now. And after we do free public transport, we're starting to take space away from the car in all the different ways that you can imagine. Open up your ideas box.
that's what we're going to have to do. Free public transport is it's called the cherry on the top. Um, the cake is all the other stuff, much more important, much more fun, foundational. It's going to take a fair amount of political will to make this happen. And you're right, it's urgent. We have a decade, if not less, to really shift this. But you know, when you make that big argument, there's going to be people who make arguments against you. So I do have to ask, do any of the sort of things people say against free transit, do those hold any weight? So, you know, is it better suited to a small transit system? Does it prompt vandalism or some of these arguments? Does it distract from service improvements? What do you think about that? How do we counter those? I hate to use this old tired expression, go big or go home. You know, if we were to make free public transport in Montreal free today, it would throw the entire system into lockjaw. We expect about 50% people would join. I've waited on, on the twi- one, of the, one of the lines that takes you downtown for three buses in a row in minus 30 degrees weather, trying to catch that 24 that isn't completely full. If we're going to do it, first you put in the carrots. First, you have to double the number of buses. Or in, in the argument I made recently, I think it's something like seven times the number of buses. 700% more buses, right, in the next five years. Buy all the secondhand buses that you can buy on, on the market across North America and bring them all to Montreal and hire the people to, to drive them around. Now, so, you know, you've got the, the infrastructure to handle free public transport. So now you bring in the sticks. So capacity, then the price, and then you bring in the sticks. So now you have to show people that it, it, it gets you where you want to go faster. In fact, in Quebec, we, we don't allow people to advertise to children. I think we stop advertising cars in Quebec. You no longer get bombarded with 15 car ads when you go on the internet or when you go to a movie theater or when you go to the metro even. We abolish car ads. We actually now advertise buses as faster, the fastest, most convenient way to get around, and it's free. That's the direction we need to go in, I think. And then the arguments against free public transport, the, the little things, they just disappear. I know that sounds very idealistic. I, I realize that I'm, I'm kind of talking a bit of nonsense here. But I think if we can get clear on the vision of the future, then the pathway to that future becomes at least imaginable. You know, I think incrementalism is fine if the incrementalism is in service of a larger vision. So there's nothing wrong with a blue sky vision, is what I'm trying to say. I think you're on the same page there. And I would say if you're going to buy all, if Montreal is going to buy all the buses, uh, Toronto's going to want some. We, we may have to fight over that. I don't know who's going to win. <laughs> Well, get cooking on it then. Somebody, somebody's got to have this idea. Start buying them up. P- part of the problem is uh, Toronto can't increase service if it wanted to because they order buses in a reactive manner rather than in a service planning manner, which is somewhat problematic for, for all of us who want better transit in the city. And what transit system do you think is going to get free transit first uh, in Canada? The one that that has the strongest movement pushing forward because things don't they don't change without a force. And where that force comes from, as I say, there are different places, there are different networks in which that can percolate. But I would say that Toronto has a pretty good, strong group. Ottawa has a very good, strong group. I think there's surprising stuff going on in Edmonton. I haven't heard from them in a while, but I understand there's some stuff going on there. And I wouldn't be surprised to see stuff happen in British Columbia, but uh, I haven't heard any noise out of that neck of the woods yet. Do you really see this happening anytime soon? Like, how organized are transit riders? Well, what's going on? Look, I, I'll tell you a little anecdote. I think it was 2013. I was in a, the, the side room. Noam Chomsky was talking at Concordia University, and I was managing the side room. 
So I, we had a technical problem. We finally got to the, we finally got to see the fella on a huge screen at the question and answer period, and he said a staggering thing. He said he did a little thought experiment in response to a question from the audience. He said, if the Occupy movement had peaked at the same time as Obama was having to make a decision about what to do with the stock, he owned all the stock of the three big car companies in the United States. He had to make a decision about what to do with them. And if Occupy had had been organized in such a way that it had some demands, some big demands, with that kind of support, that kind of popular support. And if they, if, if Occupy had, had asked Obama to give those shares not back to the capitalists, but back to the workers and to create worker co-ops of those three large companies, and then to mandate them to come up with mass transit solutions for the cities, to abandon the private car and to make mass transit collective solutions with their machines and their workers, we would be living in quite a different world today. And of course, I nearly fell off my chair. I was standing at the time, but uh, that was just such a brilliant idea. And he said that th that opportunity will come again. And I think that opportunity will come again. And we need to be prepared for it. And we need big new ideas. Where are we going? I don't know. But I, I do think that we should prepare ourselves for some big changes in the next five, 10 years. I don't think we have a choice. I think we're living in another 2008 moment right now. And unlike in 2008, we can actually seize it. And it's quite possible. I, I feel somewhat hopeful. It sounds like you do as well. I, I have to be. I have two children. I have to continue to be hopeful. In Making the Case for Free Transit, we've so far talked about the theories and experiments in free transit in cities around the world. Now we want to spotlight a city where they've implemented zero fares across the entire system with the intention of making it permanent. It's Kansas City, Missouri. With a population of about 486,000, it's the first major city in the U.S. to implement a completely zero-fare transit system. Fun fact, the Kansas City Area Transit Authority, or the KCATA, covers what's called the Kansas City Metropolitan Area, which has a population of closer to 2 million because it covers a total of 14 counties across two states, nine in Missouri, and five in Kansas, including the streetcar suburb of Kansas City, Kansas. Kansas City implemented zero fares as of the spring of 2020 during the COVID-19 pandemic, and they initially took an incremental approach. They extended zero fares to veterans, students, and one fixed service bus route, which covered 25% of ridership at the time. Today, the whole system is now zero fare, and they've secured the funding to continue this until at least 2023. What kicked off the free transit movement in Kansas City was the KC Streetcar, which has been free to ride since its opening in May 2016. I spoke with Matt Staub, a transit advocate from Kansas City, Missouri, about his work on the Kansas City Regional Transit Alliance and the Kansas City Streetcar Authority. We talked about bringing back the streetcar to Kansas City, and building community through free transit. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thanks for having me. We're doing this episode, The Case for Free Transit, because we're definitely seeing a trend of transit agencies across North America and around the world moving towards their own kind of zero fare or free transit structures for their own transit systems. And we kind of hit upon Kansas City because... It is a major city in the U.S., and basically the entire system went to zero fare. 
Based on your history of transit advocacy, who would you say was the major player in pushing for free transit in Kansas City? The free conversation really started with Streetcar, which was a new product we did not have since we removed it in the 50s, fixed rail transit in Kansas City until we installed the Streetcar. And it was separate from the system for a variety of reasons from the greater transit system. As a governance board, we're looking at what our fare recovery would be if we were to install fare collection equipment, if we were to pay for it, and then just the kind of investment we we're making. Why do we not want to encourage as much use of this thing if we're building as a, an, an amenity for a neighborhood? The conversation really started from Streetcar. When we launched it, there was a, a variety of voices, myself included, who said, let's make it free to ride uh, and just remove that additional friction. So really, Streetcar was the Trojan horse of free transit in Kansas City, and then it took off from there. So that's actually really cool to hear that you guys had brought in a streetcar because the history of transit development was that cities that did have streetcars ripped all them out in favor of buses. But it's actually really cool to see. It's like, hey, you brought back streetcars. That's really cool. But then you thought, let's make them free. It's like, yeah, that makes total sense. So tell us about the Kansas City Regional Transit Alliance and their role in the push for free transit. Yeah, the Regional Transit Alliance is just a group of interested citizens in transit advocacy representing different areas. So we have a kind of an urban core kind of service and the majority of services in Kansas City, Missouri, which is our, our core city in our metro. But then we also have service in our suburban areas. The goal of the Regional Transit Alliance is to try to balance all those conversations and bring a real regional perspective to, to transit planning and try to bridge some of those gaps. And it, it's sort of aligned with our Metropolitan Planning Organization, which is a thing we have here in the United States where regional governments are coordinated through a, an MPO. So we coordinate with all those different players to, to kind of advocate for transit and specific to free transit and the streetcar. It really was kind of the place where the transit advocates were connected and coordinated. There was kind of a separate organization called Streetcar Neighbors that focused on the streetcar project and on a really grassroots level because it was something we adopted a, our own taxing district within the service area to implement. And so there was a lot of actual door-to-door -door conversations between different condo associations and apartment buildings and things like that to get that passed. And that all just sort of grew through the Regional Transit Alliance and a lot of people that were involved with that effort served on the board of the Regional Transit Alliance and vice versa. So it's kind of a, a small community, I guess, in terms of the transit advocacy world here in terms of keeping everyone connected through the work that RTA is doing. Okay, so it sounds like kind of like a big tent advocacy group where you've brought together different voices with the same kind of shared goal of better transit. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, that's the idea. And and helping to try to coordinate a little bit more than we have in the past. Uh, we have a lot of jurisdictional silos and things like that. And that's why ultimately our goal will be to pursue a regional funding model. We have a lot of weird and bespoke funding approaches that differ from different places. And that can mean interruptions in service or weird routing around certain municipalities. So really to try to move to a model that's more rider-centric and more service-centric as opposed to more community and municipality centric. So that's kind of the vision of where we're taking it is how do we actually think about this regionally? How do we pay for it regionally? How do we prioritize it as the economic development and basic amenity, basic infrastructure for our community that it is? What would you say is, well, was the main argument made by supporters of free transit? So 
KCRTA, but also other allied organizations. So what was the main argument in the push for free transit and why do you think it was compelling? Yeah, it started with streetcar. And in that case, the, the main thing is we wanted as many people as possible to use it. And so to do that, we wanted to remove friction from the system. We wanted the idea that you could just hop on anytime to get somewhere. And that's always preferential to any other user, whether they're using the system or not. It's good for drivers. If, if more other drivers are not on the road, it's good for property owners that are investing in the system. If more and more people are coming by their businesses and stopping. So we really wanted to maximize ridership and removing that friction was huge. And then when we expanded that conversation onto the bus system, then there was a question of equity, right? We have the streetcar system that serves kind of the most active and growing part of our city and our downtown core where riders can ride around for free, but then we are doing core transit service through our neighborhoods and still charging. And that was just more of a a governance question. But then you have to ask the question, well, why? That's clearly not fair. And why is the rationale of wanting to promote ridership that obviously transit ridership is aligned with our goals for climate and for development and all the things we want to do as a city, why would we not want to maximize the ridership? So that conversation just extended both as an equity conversation and as a as a values conversation to the whole system. And the city leadership took that on and found ways to to make that incrementally. We started with our transit agency discounting certain routes and certain for certain populations like students and veterans, and then incrementally continued to make the system completely free. It was kind of an evolution starting from that initial conversation of what we want people to use this. That's the most important thing. So in our research, we found that there's a lot of literature focusing on the transit rider views of free transit, some of it contradictory. There's the kind of social equity take where you want to enable lower income and moderate income people to be able to get around, to access jobs, education, and opportunities. Now that free transit is a fact on the ground in Kansas City, how are riders reacting? I think the riders themselves are pretty positive. Um, Maybe it's kind of the, the circles that I keep, but the idea of free and easier Again, just the, the re- removal of the complication of the fare box is, is huge for adoption of the system. And the equity aspect, you know, our fares, I think, were $1.50 before we went free. So relatively affordable as transit systems go. But it's a meaningful impact for someone that was riding every day, and especially people that are you know, at the poverty line or facing other financial challenges. So I think that is an argument that, uh, resonates here in the community. Uh, I think the only negativity that I, we really see are from people that weren't really transit supporters in the first place. And, you know, talking about why are we spending money on this? It's your traditional naysayers. But from the ridership community, there's excitement about us being a leader in this area. And then there's all the reasons why we think it makes sense for promoting it as basic infrastructure, as a as a promotion of our values and our vision as a community and and just as an equity investment. Gotta love those naysayers, eh? Because like, I don't care if you take transit or not. Getting more people into transit is an overall positive thing for so many reasons. But I would argue like a major reason is to get more cars off the roads. So for the folks who drive regularly, your commute would be that much easier because you'd be reduced congestion. Indeed. And one of the other things we like to say in our advocacy is that you may not rely on it, but someone you rely on relies on it, whether it be your employee, the person that's making your coffee, 
And as our region changes and we get more into logistics, we are right in the heart of America here in Kansas City. We have a bunch of warehouses and large employers kind of on the edges of our community. And so how those folks can get reliable workers that have transportation options and they're not dependent on cars. It's becoming more and more clear how important the transit system is and that we all invest in it. And particularly when we compare to how much oversight and feedback you get on a highway project, right? We, we spend hundreds of millions of dollars on one interchange here in the region and nobody says anything about it. But if we spend a few million dollars to make our buses free, it's something that people like to focus upon. We all pay for the roads through our taxes, regardless of whether we drive or not. So, you know, it goes both ways. For all the naysayers, just like, transit is a good thing. We should spend money on it, plain and simple. And you don't have to take it. Nobody's forcing you to, but there's other folks who want to or need to, and we should make it easy for them. Yeah, it works for you, whether you write it or not. Complain about something else, for crying out loud. Speaking of naysayers, how do you address the existing criticisms of free transit? There's always the, it'll cost too much money. But other places that have tried free transit saw overcrowding, obviously because people flocked to transit, which good thing. But then again, if you don't have the service to match it, then obviously there are problems. And instances of vandalism, because again, I assume more people access in the system. How did you guys in Kansas City address those kinds of criticisms? There's kind of a couple of layers there in terms of the, the adoption of the system and whether we're going to have overcrowding and it was going to strain our service. We really were trying to, we would love to, we would have loved to have that problem. We had more of the opposite problem of not enough ridership. Our, our mode share of, of transit is pretty low in Kansas City. So we really wanted to cross that bridge when it came come to it and actually get more people on board, particularly with the streetcar. We It was a high capacity system. We were dropping into the area and we wanted people to use it. And we actually have seen traumatic ridership and we've actually invested in a couple of additional vehicles uh, over what we originally forecast because ridership has been so great. And then in terms of just like rider behavior and things like that, we've have a really good relationship with our community improvement district, which is a kind of an overlay district of self-funded through assessments on property owners, much like the way we're paying for the streetcar. So we have security officers and kind of community liaisons, a friendlier face that helps kind of keep track of who's who. And they kind of know the usual suspects of people that might be problematic. They have, you know, a very customer service focused along our, tra- our main transit corridors. So those folks are just on the street working all the time to try to make it a hospitable place. So that's a, a big part of it too. And that's helped us be successful and avoid some of those other issues. And then I think just the the positivity that people have had, some of the problems we've had is just sparsely used routes now with a little bit more adoption and a little bit of a sense of ownership. We're trying to build a transit culture in Kansas City to the extent that we hadn't had one before. And so while there may be those that removal of that impediment maybe causes them to have a lack of respect for the system. I think there's more so people that now feel a sense of connection or ownership or investment in the system because we are investing in it as a community. And so there's a pride aspect. Maybe I'm being a little Pollyanna with that, but that's the way it feels to me, at least, that that all of this was an effort to build a culture and an, an acceptance of transit. And we've kind of got that community value here a little bit more than we did before. Well, you know what? I think there is always room at the next stop for hope and optimism when it comes to transit. Happy to bring a little bit if I can. I mean, we wouldn't be doing this podcast otherwise. 
So the things you're describing, not Pollyannish at all. I mean, it's like, yeah, it does sound kind of like feel good, kumbaya. But that's okay. Especially the kind of world we've been living in, especially the fact that we've been living through this bloody pandemic. I think we are very much overdue for like lots of hope and, you know, optimism. So it all sounds good what you're describing. I guess kind of kind of like want to diverge a little bit. Is the zero fare system, is it a pilot or is it permanent? What's happening with it? That's a great question. And I know there are semantics that are used, in, especially in city government, to sort of trial balloon things or get things passed and, and make people feel comfortable with things. I'm not sure what the actual language being used to describe it is. I think the intention is universally that we are making this move intentionally and we're going to stick with it. But it's sort of a, a declare it first and then figure out a way to make it happen. So I mentioned that we're kind of implementing it or we have implemented it incrementally in the region. Some of the municipalities actually don't haven't supported it or funded it yet. So there are places within the grander system outside of Kansas City, Missouri that don't have it. And then it's funded through a variety of different appropriation from the city in terms of how there's some COVID relief money and the ATA folks would be better suited to speak to some of that. But I think the intention is that it's a permanent initiative, but the plan is not fully flushed out on how it's going to be sustained over the long term. And that's why there's an effort from the advocacy community, including the Regional Transit Alliance, to pursue a regional funding mechanism that could then give it a true long-term plan. So what is it on at the mercy of appropriations for municipalities and individual checks and jurisdictions to keep it going. So it's really kind of a, an issued challenge in practice. Well, I mean, I hope it becomes permanent just because it just sounds like it's been overall positive and just the kind of approach is like, yeah, we're going to announce it and then we'll just kind of figure it out. That's perfectly fine. <laughs> right. I think sometimes. Yeah. That's sometimes how you have to get things done. <laughs> I think we get sometimes get stuck too in the weeds of trying to figure out how to actually do the thing and then just get too lost in the weeds and then nothing happens, as is, you know, the case for any city government kind of decision making. So I think it's pretty awesome. I hope it sticks around and you guys basically become the kind of prime example that other cities can point to as an example of free transit that works. And we love being a positive example. So if anything, our pride will get the best of us and we will we will continue it. I'm very confident we'll continue it. It's just going to be the ongoing challenge now of how we're going to approach this as a region. That's what the advocacy community is taking on next. Yeah, and so our last question, what do you think will be the main outcome of a free transit in Kansas City? You know, how do you see the next few years, assuming that it does stick around? What do you think? I'm hopeful that Kansas City is an interesting city in that it is kind of a tale of two cities. We've got a very amazing core area that still has the density from our streetcar era, has a lot of destinations within that area that is really a rich area to be served with transit. And then we also have, like most American cities, a lot of suburban sprawl. We're including within our city limits. We're a massive city with a density challenge. And so I hope in those areas that are already strong areas to be served with transit, we continue to build more of a transit culture. And then we start to connect and see changes to the way we we think about livability that includes things like transit. And I think just starting to build that culture with free transit and removing barriers and letting people get a sense for it. Streetcar is a huge part of that as sort of a taste test to a broader transportation option. And my optimistic take is that we'll just continue to to become more and more of a a transit 
community in a way that we have not been in the past. People just sort of get used to this and, and we start to mature, particularly in our urban core, as less of a car-centric place. And then we bring options to people. We don't want to you know, take away anybody's car, obviously, but we want to feel like there's truly options that are viable and competitive. And we haven't had that in the past, really. We've always prioritized driving so much so that it makes transit impractical because it would be silly not to drive. But that, you know, there's huge questions of the way we build, of, of equity, of climate change and our, our role in that, that come with that. And so we picked a good time, I think, for us to start to explore our values and go a different direction. That's a long-winded way of saying that I, I think our culture is going to change around this. And this is a, a big enough initiative that we're all sort of aligning as a community behind this as a value. And it will introduce more people to transit as well. So I'm optimistic that we're headed in a, a positive direction. Oh, that's really cool. And I think I just came up with a new tagline for Kansas City. It's like building community through free transit. What do you think? I'm here for it. I think that's that's great. After learning the advocacy work about the free transit movement in Kansas City, our next question was, what does it take to implement and operate a zero-fare transit system? To answer this question, I spoke with Robbie Mackinnon, president and CEO of the Kansas City Area Transit Authority. He's served in this role since 2015, and he served on the KCATA board before that. Fun fact... Robbie's professional background is in social work and children's services. This was the most fun and insightful interview with the head of a transit agency that I've done so far for the podcast. And I was an instant fan as soon as he uttered his first line. Why the move to zero fares in Kansas City? Well, why not? My biggest point would be the moment you say free transit, all of a sudden everybody thinks that, oh, no, nothing's free. Somebody's got to pay for it and whatever. Well, of course they do. But the question should be, what do you want to invest in? Why don't you want to invest in people, in human capital, in, in the citizens of this region? Part of the problem with transit agencies, in my opinion, is that they don't look at things holistically. They sit out on an island by themselves with their budget and then they talk about revenue from fares or whatever, and then just think about what's going on in between the curbs. What I'm saying is we need to take the blinders off, look outside the curbs, and, and look with, look what's going on with the community. You as a transit agency have got to weave yourself into the community fabric of the community. What that does is actually give you an ability to diversify your funding streams. Here in Kansas City, now we're going after workforce development money, health care money, money for veterans, those kind of things, which are avenues that we never would have went down before. So not only are you providing a better service, not only are you taking your public transit agency into the next 25 years, not the last 25, but you're, you're becoming a member of the community. And when you go back to zero fare, this wasn't just some radical idea about uh, the blind CEO flipping a switch and saying, hey, everything's free. We have slowly and methodically over the last four and a half years moved to zero fare. We first made transit free for our veterans. Then we made it zero fare for our school kids, high school kids. Then we made it zero fare for our safety net providers, domestic violence shelters, folks like that. And then we went zero fare on the rest of the routes. And then it just so happened that COVID hit. And because of COVID, obviously, it made even more sense with you know social distancing and the ability to eliminate touch points and stuff like that. Now, when we first started talking about zero fare, 
I was told repeatedly that this will not work. And then everybody wanted to cite some report from 2000 and God knows when about gangs of New York and, and kids and crime and all this stuff and society breaking down as we know it. None of that happened. We've been doing zero fare now for a year and a half. Our, our incident rates have actually gone down another 35%. Why? Because honestly, I'm sure this is true in other transit agencies, 85% of any incident that happened on one of my vehicles was because of a fare box dispute, was because of $1.50. Why am I going to put my operator in harm's way for $1.50? So let's take, the, let's take the next step. Where does that $1.50 go? Okay, if it comes into my fare box, then I'm using it for, you know, the bureaucracy of this agency and, and things like that. And let's be perfectly clear. One does not cut the other. You don't cut service to make zero fare. They are two sides of the same coin. We would never do that. So that's not even in the picture. What we did cut is we cut management. We cut management side. We cut bureaucracy of chamber dinners, of cutting down travel, of all those kinds of things that got us to an 11 12% cut, and then the city of Kansas City bought into it, and the city council actually gave us the other half. So that's how we're covering the revenue loss. But let's go back to that $1.50. Where's that $1.50 going? If it doesn't go into my fare box, where's it going? It's going right back into the local economy. I would argue that even during the pandemic, when we were doing thirty to 40,000 rides a day, that the transit authority is pumping a million, five, two million dollars back into the local economy. And where's that money going? It's not going into some tax shelter in the Bahamas. It's going right back in the local community. It's going to buy a pair of shoes, a prescription, some food and groceries, something like that. So again, if you look at this holistically, that public transit is a part of the community, is a part of that whole environment, and not just out sitting on an island by itself, the optic is totally different. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. Th that, that's how this came about. What we try and tell folks around here now is trying to change the culture because it's a change the culture to this is about people. Okay. What I tell my folks every day is you get to make a difference in more people's lives than most people get to do in a lifetime. This isn't not about rubber and asphalt and steel. It's about people. And the one thing we're going to remember always is that we're not going to run away from the people that need us the most. We're going to run toward them. The whole dynamic has got to shift here as far as public transit is concerned, in my opinion. Ridership. Everybody wants to base everything upon ridership. That's how we measure everything. To me, ridership is a byproduct. It's a byproduct of whether you have a system that has enough modes so people can have and enough service to where you can people can have access and options. If you have access and options, you are more apt to use public transit and ridership will come. So I think we're looking at this backwards. Now, when it comes to service that you're providing, why are you trying to provide service, express service from the suburbs to get in and come to work and then get back out again when the people who need you the most and 85% or 70% of your ridership, the people that need you the most are down here, are down here in the urban core. That's the people we need to take care of. And those are the people that we found out during COVID, those are your essential workers. Those are the ones that had to get, still had to go to work every day. Those are the ones that kept this city breathing while everybody else was sitting at home. So I really think that COVID really kind of uh, uh, crystallized, A, the people that actually need public transit and why, we, you know, you may not use public transit, but you depend on a lot of people every day who do, okay? 
and you depend on them. So I think it crystallized the folks that use public transit and how important that is and how important public transit is itself. And, and the fact that we went zero fare, especially during COVID, allowed, you know, when people at a time when people were losing their cars, losing their apartments, losing houses or whatever, it still gave you access. You still had access to the whole region, right? And when everybody else's ridership went down to like 20% or whatever, ours never barely dipped below 60. Why? Because we were taking the people that needed to go somewhere, we were taking them there, and B, we were doing it for zero fare so that if Mrs. Johnson down on Prospect here with her two kids saves $1,500, $2,000 a year because she doesn't have to put it in my fare box, where's it going to go? Again, your transit authority, your transit agency needs to be a part of the community, not just by itself in its own little box and not, not caring about it. And again, if you do that, not only are you helping your community, not only are you then showing that public transportation is the glue. Look, we, we, we work on four things here, all right? We look at public transit in Kansas City with four pillars, access to jobs, access to health care, access to education, and access to housing. And all that is surrounded with a solid foundation of social equity, which is the zero fare concept. So if you look at your transit agency through that lens, rather than just taking people from A to B, it gives you a whole different optic, a whole different dynamic uh, of what your job is around here. Okay, why do you get up in the morning and why should anybody care? When we start talking about people in this agency, that allows my gosh, I got 150 stories that I could sit here and tell you right now about operators who pulled over a bus just to help a blind guy across the street, help get a guy a pair of shoes because it was 10 below zero, these kinds of things. Just being great members of the community and great citizens. And the thing that always bothered me is that during COVID, everybody wanted to talk about grocery workers and everybody else, which was very important, but nobody ever wanted to bring up transit operators. And the fact that they were putting their lives on the line every day, getting people, keeping cities breathing, okay? And that always bothered me, and I, we can't say enough about it. Can't say enough about it. But public transit is that one thing. It's that one thing that can cross county lines, state lines, municipal lines. It's that one thing that is the glue, no matter what you want to bring up, no matter what subject you want to bring up, whether it's tourism, whether it's healthcare, whether it's whatever, I can show you a public transit element that is important in that. And if we start thinking that way, if we can raise the level of, of consciousness when it comes to public transit, and we can put it as a part of those conversations about all these different subject matter, then we're all going to be in a much better place. Well, I appreciate you saying all that. It sounds like you take a people first approach to running transit and it permeates all your decision making. And it's what transit should be. Amen. Yeah. And I just think of how the kinds of debates we have in Toronto with our transit system and our transit system is a lot bigger than the one in Kansas City. But the things that you cite like uh, urban and suburban divide and what are we, why are we offering transit, getting from point A to B or giving people access to opportunity and social equity. These are the kinds of conversations that we're having in Toronto. And I will say that just because transit is not funded as well as it is in the U.S., that our transit system, the Toronto Transit Commission, definitely does struggle with all those kind of competing demands and, you know, what transit should be. And so, you know, I find that they do have a tendency to kind of fall back on the, you know, getting people from A to B way of doing transit as opposed to 
the people first kind of approach. And like you've said, like giving people access to you know, healthcare, education, housing, employment, all those things are important. And if you can start to if you can start to quantify those things holistically, then we're going to be able to make the case that okay, for example, we had the university here in town do a study about zero fare and talking about the fact that that dollar 50 or that money for a year turns over three or four times and it's going to generate how many ever 17 million dollars of economic activity it's a bigger deal so if we can get our elected officials if we can get our stakeholders and get everybody to understand that this isn't just about going from a to b that this isn't just about a simple this is transit funding and then everything else is something else all right weaving yourself into the fabric of healthcare, of job access, of all of those things will change the future of public transit. And that's where we need to go. Otherwise, we're going to sit around where we are now and we're going to sit here with our hand out and say, we need more money. We need more money. We're circling the drain. And you know what? The money's not coming. So we got to be a little innovative. We got to go look at things through a different lens. Out here, we're doing economic development now economic development in transit corridors, transit-oriented development. And if that can bring back fees, if, if working with corporate partners as well as uh, the city when it comes to economic development, so that as part of the incentive process, public transit is a part of that. So part of that clawback comes back to help pay for public transit in that corridor, help pay for the zero fare bill, rather than doing it afterwards, right? And public transit is usually reactive, all right? We need to be proactive. We need to be proactive and insert ourselves in the conversations when it comes to economic development, when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to affordable housing and all those things. And if you do that and you can get a seat at that table, then it takes it away from the easy way, which everybody just the easy way out is always just sit there and go, well, we need more money or we're going to cut service or that's too easy. All right. Let's 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 get in. Let's do a little work and and weave ourselves into the community and and see what we can get done. That's what we're doing here. So was it challenging to get the uh, political buy-in when you were first making the case for zero fares and free transit? Of course it was. Okay. Of course it was. Again, you get the, you know, we had to go through the whole deal of, oh my gosh, crime. Oh my gosh, homeless folks. Oh my gosh, cats living with dogs. You know, society's going to break down as we know it. Yeah, we had to go through all that. And then you had to go through the part of nobody should have anything free. You don't have any ownership if it's free. So you know, that whole kind of ideology or whatever. So yeah, it took a long time. So what we did, honestly, like I said, we methodically and strategically did this. It's not like we flipped a switch. We started doing veteran stuff. We had like 5 million veterans rides along with the VA and and with uh, some local veterans community agencies. And then with the school kids, got the school district on board. And then with our safety net providers, which was a big deal because obviously they go out and buy passes every month. So by getting them all on board ahead of time and then taking that coalition to our elected officials going, hey, look, look at the results we're getting from this. Look at how much this is benefiting the folks who need it the most in our community. It was an easier sell. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It it sounds like you took a kind of graduated approach. Yeah, absolutely. You You decided to kind of focus on one particular group of potential riders and then saw the results and then you moved on to the next kind of group of riders, and then so on and so forth. Yeah, let me give you another innovative thing that we're doing. So when you talk about, obviously, I the crime deal, I told you our crime, our incident rates went down 35%, even more. So 
that's less than 1% out of our 16 million rides a year, I know, which isn't as big as half as big as yours. However, our incident rate is, is below 1%. Okay. And so we have one of the safest public transit systems in the United States and we're zero fare. So nobody can make that argument. So the argument they're going to come to is, okay, well, all the homeless people are just going to get on the bus and they're going to ride it back and forth and live on it. Okay, well, of course, we do a loop rider policy, which is you have to get off at the end of a route or whatever. And of course, we have more, a, a little more security on corridors. But here's the biggest thing. Because we allow zero fare and because you as a safety net provider or a homeless service provider do not have to pay to buy passes for your clients, here's what we want in return. When you have outreach teams, put them on public transit. Get them on our buses, get them on our our vehicles so that they can offer resources, so that they can spot issues, so that they can find people that they were looking for and give people direction on, okay, hey, if you come down here, you can get this. You get what I mean? So you've got a mobile, kind of a mobile resource center all the way around. And I'd rather do it that way than just put more more cops with guns on, on a bus, right? And that's an innovative idea. And then what we also want to do and are looking into is having kind of a rapid response team that would have uh, mental health professionals, as well as the possibility of EMT or something like that, to be able to get to a scene to offer some resources too. Look, homelessness is not a transit issue. It's a community issue. But we've all got to try and do our part, and we've all got to try and help out. So that's what we're doing around here, and we just don't want to do things the same old way. We're going to push the envelope, and there you go. Change comes at the end of your comfort zone. Kansas City is the end of your comfort zone. Okay, and that's a great tagline as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, I appreciate you saying that about, well, I mean, the amazing kind of statistic about how incidents on your transit system like plummeted after the move to zero fare, which makes total sense. We had a recent episode where we basically criticized the move to have fare enforcement officers in our subway stations and service vehicles and how that was a bad move. Look, how, what are you paying? Okay, if you would look and, and to see how much you're paying for fare police, if, you, if you're looking how much, that's what we look through, all right? My, my revenue coming into our fare box was less than 10% of our budget, right? It was right around there. But was it really that? No, because when you talk about fair policing, when you talk about the fact that you've got to collect the money and then take it and do this with it, and when you talk about you've got to repair fare boxes every this, that, it's not really the amount you think it is. It's lower. You know, when we were looking at a 12 to $20 million uh, redo of all of our fare boxes, it was like, this is, this is ridiculous. We're throwing good money after bad, and there's a better way to do this that can really make a difference in not only our customers' lives, but make our system safer, make our operators safer, and get us more woven into the community fabric. Well, speaking of operators, did you need to kind of get any buy-in from your frontline workers? Oh, absolutely. But I think COVID did a lot of that, okay? Uh, The fact that we had put up safety plexiglass shields before, and then now the fact that we could load from the back and... There didn't have to be fair box disputes and there didn't have to be those touch points, I think really went a long way to getting our operators on board too. Have your operators been kept relatively safe? I know that here in Toronto, we've had several operators uh, test positive. We've had outbreaks at certain garages. We've had a few operators die from COVID. I mean, 
how's it been in Kansas City? I am so sorry to hear that. Uh, we've actually, knock on wood, we've done really well. Because when we reduced our service, we could have laid off 100, 150 people. But what was the point of putting 150 people on the street without health care in probably the worst situation they would be in their lives? So we capped everybody. And instead of when we weren't running routes, we had folks instead of driving, they were cleaning. We had been very proactive and worked really hard to really make cleaning protocols a, a priority. And because of that fact, the only COVID cases that we can actually say that we've had here, which is under, I think, under 60, were brought in or, or gotten from the outside. And luckily, no one no one has passed, and, and we've been pretty good about that. And I hope that just, I hope that keeps going. Pray that it does. Great to hear. And um, sounds like you're doing all the right things to keep your employees safe. So did you have to make any major changes to service or infrastructure to accommodate increased ridership associated with zero fares? Well, Helen, it's not zero fare transit for zero fares transit's sake, okay? It's a part of the process, all right? The other part is what you're talking about. We were in the middle. We knew that we had to, since we were talking about our four pillars in, in social equity, we knew that we had to look at our system a different way. We knew that we had to look at our system to see what kind of efficient, fast service we were getting for the people who actually needed it. For the 75% of our ridership who was disenfranchised or the ones I was talking about that are the backbone of this community and that we were able to see. So redesigning our system as a part of the process is actually what we did and are doing. We were taking people that we knew we were taking people where they needed to be and then also hook the zero fare part of it. We had Jared Walker come in and help us redesign our system. Of course, nobody has enough money to do what they want to do, but we think we found a good mix so that zero fare and new system design are two sides of the same coin. Well, we are big fans of Jared Walker in the podcast, so it's really cool that you're able to um, access his expertise. Talk to me about the Kansas City streetcar, because I was doing my interview with Matt Stubb. I was just kind of commenting how the history of trends in North America is that all these cities that kind of start out with streetcar systems tore them out and replaced them with buses due to a combination of factors. So to have him tell me that a big factor was the kind of revival over the Kansas City streetcar, I thought it was just really cool. Um, in Toronto, like we retained our legacy streetcar system is actually part of the rapid transit that's available in our downtown. So talk to me about the streetcar in um, Kansas City. Well, the thing we had to get over in Kansas City is the fact that uh, everybody always wanted to pit one thing against another, right? It's streetcar versus bus, bus versus Uber, Uber versus scooters, you know, all that. Look, what we had to understand is that, again, this is about access and it's about options, right? And that it shouldn't be one versus the other. There's room in the tent for all of us. And it's your job as a transit agency, as a transit authority, to connect all the dots. So that's the way we look at it. So we have a streetcar, obviously, that's that's two miles now downtown, that fantastic ridership. It was zero fare, is, and now... Thanks to the federal government, we were going to expand all the way down to uh, our university and then down to our riverfront on the other side. And it is the backbone and will be the backbone of our public transit system. And 
just your ability to, again, to not look at one mode versus another. I like to say we're mode agnostic, right? And all we got to do is connect the dots, all right, and give people those options and give people that access to where there's a bike rack, right, the electric bike rack right there or a scooter rack and or you can catch a bus to go east and west or whatever. But looking at our streetcar system like it is the backbone of the Kansas City of a comprehensive public transit system is definitely the way to go. So would you say that transit in Kansas City has more or less coexisted with all the different kinds of transportation options available to people, especially with you know Uber, ride-sharing, but you also mentioned scooters? We always wonder about how much like the Uber factor has kind of affected trend systems across North America, around the world, just because they do have a tendency to kind of decrease ridership. How are things in Kansas City in that respect? Well, I think it, I think it's just the opposite, right? And, and I think our ridership is bearing that out with with zero fare in place too to help boost that. Again, being mode agnostic and understanding that the person that wants to take Uber isn't necessarily the person that is going to take our bus service to get to work is critical thinking. Again, like I said, 75, 80% of the people that use our bus system are usually folks of of color or or have been disenfranchised, low income, whatever. And so it's critical that that service is there. So again, why, why why should we throw money at trying to get a rider off of Uber when we could put it where it does more good to have fast and efficient service for the biggest share of our riders, right? It's just a different way of looking at public transit. You know, the fact that you shouldn't be trying to pull riders off the streetcar to get them on the bus. Or, Like I said, if you have action, if you have access and you have options, your ridership will come. And I think we've proven that out, especially when you have the zero fare element. And you ask, so what do you got to do when you have increased, well, you know, what a great problem to have. Okay, we're at 80% ridership now. We don't even have our, all of our service back. When we have all our service back, probably by the end of the summer, you know, we can absorb probably a 30 to 60% increase in ridership, which would be great. And if it goes above that, what a great problem to have. The federal government comes in and helps us buy buses. You know, we come up with a 20% match. The, the more service I can get on the street, the more ridership we have I love that problem. I don't know why anybody wouldn't want to have Curious about the accessibility of Kansas City Transit, especially given that you yourself have a visual impairment. You're blind. Can you speak to the accessibility? Absolutely. When I got on this board a while ago, we didn't even have a map of all the different service in this region, right? We got two states, seven counties, 17 municipalities, whatever. We never had a map of what everybody even did or how it connected. That's how dysfunctional public transit was in Kansas City. So our ability to start putting all of that together, and me as, as, a, as someone with a disability, uh, if, if I tried to get from one city to another and or another state across the state line here or across the county line, and then I needed to go within that county or within that city or whatever, I couldn't do it because I didn't qualify for their service. And there's no way I could sit around and qualify for everybody's service. So it really limited and and really, look, zero fare and and the public transit I'm talking about breaks down barriers. That goes for folks with uh, disabilities also. With our disability service, what we do is you can ride fixed route service for free. You can ride paratransit service, normal paratransit service for free. And then you have a third step that we call Ride KC Freedom, which is kind of an Uber type service, only it's done in-house 
with a public-private partnership, and that you can pay a fee for because it's kind of a premium service, right, if you wanted that fast trip. And, and the great part about that is I get the same service you get. I'm not driving in a separate car that you know that I'm disabled because I'm in the share fare car. You may be in the car with me, all right? And if you take that service, you know, 10% of that money comes back to help pay for our paratransit service for our folks. So we have more options for folks with disabilities in Kansas City than most people do. And I'm very, very proud of that. And just the ability to give people options and access, just like we said, and the ability to tear down the barriers, which are silly, a different process to get eligibility in this city or that city or whatever, being able to break all that down, coming forth as an actual transit authority, knowing that you're not just a bus company, you're there to connect all those dots and break down those barriers is what we've done over the last five years. And I'm very, very proud of that. So how do we take stock of all of these interviews we did on free transit? You know, I spoke to Jason and I found him definitely a great guest. All of our guests were fantastic. Uh, a few takeaways for me, though, I found it very interesting how he summed up, you know, essentially that free transit isn't uh, a silver bullet. You know, uh, we did talk a little bit about how previous cities who tried free transit, especially in North America, simply did it as a standalone measure, and that didn't work. All the contributors to his book, and he emphasized this quite constantly in our interview, that service improvements must happen along with the introduction of free transit. While it's definitely an important signifier that your city wants to move beyond you know, mass dependence on the automobile, it has to be part of a, a package of measures to make transit more attractive, make transit the, the, the main method of getting around your city. I found that very interesting and very, I guess more practically, applicable to cities who are thinking of taking the road of fare-free transit. So Helen, what did you think? What, what did you take away from Jason's wisdom? It's pretty similar to your take. Again, like it's one thing to say, we're going to do free transit. But if you don't have kind of the appropriate other pieces in place, then it won't work. And we learned this in our research. The other cities that had their own experiments free transit, it didn't last. Yeah, not at all. It's about making transit more desirable than driving. You have to have the service to go with it. You have to have enough vehicles and you have to operate them with a decent amount of frequency to offer like free transit, but only have the bus running every half an hour. Well, mm, I don't think you're going to have a lot of people taking that. Less than useful. Exactly. I mean, just because it's free doesn't mean it's good. So I think I take away, it's like the transit has to be good to begin with and then make it free. Yes. And then you will definitely get people taking it and you will definitely get people out of their cars. Yeah, exactly. Like I think, you know, it's important I cycle back to the idea that it's a signifier. So it, it really does show that you intend on making transit the the mode for getting around your city. And it's part of that whole package of transit improvement, which we need to have probably across the board worldwide. And it's very interesting. A lot of the contributors did come from different parts of the world, you know, as far apart as Brazil and Poland and the United States. And the lessons for all of these places were the same. You have to invest in your transit system. Free transit is part of that, and it's an important part of it, but it's not the only part. And you really need to take the step beyond, you know, beyond this sort of emphasis on the private car for everything. And like I say, free transit is part of that. But what I found really interesting was your discussions with our, our friends in Kansas City, because it's not a city that I would think is a, a transit leader, but as, as you found out, it kind of is. 
Kansas City is considered a mid-sized city in the U.S., but it's definitely the biggest city that's moved to free transit and is committed to free transit until at least 2023. I also thought it was pretty neat in that their transit authority covers two states, Missouri and Kansas. So that was pretty cool. That's pretty unique. So, I mean, their local transit system is also like an interstate kind of transit system. You know, I'm not sure if there are kind of similar transit agencies in North America. Off the top of my head, I think there's a few. I think St. Louis is like that. Any of those Midwestern cities that straddle a river and where the state border went down the river, but it actually became a big city, that tends to happen. But it's not really that common. So I think it's a pretty unique arrangement and kind of interesting. Yeah, exactly. And in chatting with Matt, learned that on the advocacy side, the push for free transit was built around the new Kansas City streetcar, which links the downtown with the Crossroads Arts District. And fun fact, we found out that the Crossroads has about 60 art galleries, which makes it one of the top five arts districts in the U.S. So streetcars plus art means Kansas City sounds like a really cool Midwestern town. Yeah, until you told me that, I didn't know any of this. And it does sound pretty cool, doesn't it? Like, we're going to add it to our, our field trip list. We'll get there someday. Yeah, when we do get there, perhaps we'll get a tour of Kansas City Transit from Robbie Mackinnon, who I also interviewed for the episode, the CEO of KCATA. From his interview, we learned that only 10% of Kansas City's operating revenue comes from the fare box. It can be argued that it was relatively easy for Kansas City to make up the difference in fare revenue and switch over to zero fares. But it's also worth noting that this was done at the same time as their investment in major capital projects that being the Kansas City streetcar, but also their bus rapid transit. It's one thing to build new transit, but then you have to get people to ride it. And I think that's really important. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm trying to think, okay, is this lesson applicable to Toronto? Well, on one hand, Toronto probably has a higher percentage of the population riding transit than the Kansas City area. But at the same time, we're investing a lot in major capital projects. We have the Crosstown coming online soon, the Finch West LRT, a few other projects in the 905, but none of them seem to be coming with some other improvements to operations funding to make sure that transit is actually there for people. I think Toronto definitely can learn from the Kansas City experience that you have to do this as a package or else it, you know, the result isn't going to be as good as you want it to be. Yeah, I think of it as comprehensive transit planning. Yes as opposed to ribbon-cutting transit planning that we seem to be very good at. And again, our higher levels of government are very happy to fund capital projects, not so much about operations funding. And that's a problem because the two things go hand in hand. Day-to-day funding is not sexy, but it's important. Yeah, it's necessary. Yeah, you have to maintain the vehicles. You have to pay your workers. You have to encourage people to actually take the transit. And the transit itself is not well-maintained, people aren't going to take it. Yeah, wow, who'd have thought? I was also inspired by Robbie's belief in transit as the driver for economic activity and social equality. He believes that transit connects people to the four pillars of jobs, education, housing, and healthcare. I very much agree. 
Both of us are big transit nerds, and we share the same belief as Robbie that transit is so much more than getting people from A to B. I think that Robbie is a great example of a transit leader, someone who really believes in the possibilities of transit, but is also a big fan of his city and its people and wants to bring good transit to everyone. That's an inspiring manifesto. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think Robbie's one of our people, I'll say. Like, that was my impression of, of him, and he, he seems like he gets it. Maybe we can clone him and just bring him to Toronto. I mean, that's an idea. <laughs> it's one idea anyway. I think he's happy in Kansas City. He sounds like it. Anyways, that was the case for free transit. I want to thank our guests for this episode, Jason Prince, Matt Staub, and Robbie Mackinnon. Rocket Riders, what did you think? Let us know. You can find us on all the social media at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Next Stop Pod. You can find this episode and all of our previous episodes on our website, thenextstop.ca. Find us, like, and subscribe through your favorite podcast service. You can leave a rating on Apple Podcasts. If you really like us, we have a Patreon page as well. From The Next Stop, I'm Helen Lee. And I'm Vincent Puhaka. Thanks for listening. Until next time.